0: If your Bibles are open to the book of Ecclesiastes, make sure that they are turned to chapter 4, and let's bow our heads in prayer before we begin. Our Lord, is your people, we long to hear from you through your word. We thank you that you have given to us a perfect expression of truth and a perfect revelation of what is true concerning you and your purposes and your glory. We pray that you would help us to be encouraged by what we read here today and that our hearts may be lifted in praise to you, our great God. Help us to learn things which are important for assessing life as it is lived under the sun. And may you be glorified through our meditation today, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In Ephesians, Ephesians, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes gives a brutally honest assessment of life as it is lived under the sun. And his assessment and description of life under the sun is enough to make some people feel very uncomfortable because of its brutal honesty. And maybe you kind of sense that as we were reading earlier at the beginning of our service from this larger extended passage, some of the things that Solomon says kind of makes us as Christians cock our heads to the side a little bit and say, "Where, where are you going with that? What do you what do you mean by that?" It's because it is brutally honest. In the book of Psalms, we get a picture of life that is is littered with high-sounding praise and adoration for God. And the book of Psalms is, describes uh, high mountaintop experiences, emotional experiences with God. It describes God's praise and His adoration. It describes a God who is above the sun, who has created the sun, who is worthy of our worship and our praise. And in the Psalms, we don't get, in the Psalms, the the Psalms do not, are not ignorant of the discouraging and depressing aspects of life, that they're honest about life as it is lived, but the Psalms lift us from under the sun and lift our hearts and our minds to the praising the God who is above the sun, the praiseworthy God who is above the sun, who is worthy of praise and who in all of the discouraging and distressing aspects of life, he is working out a purpose, he is working out a plan. And then in the book of Ecclesiastes, you really don't get that kind of language. That heavenly perspective is not entirely absent from Ecclesiastes, but it is very, very rare. Occasionally Solomon looks up and, and sees rays of divine truth beaming through the clouds of discouragement and depressing to, to depression to life as it's lived under the sun. And it's almost when, almost as if when Solomon glances heavenward, it's as if he is forced to do so. Because he, he can't deal with life as it is lived entirely under the sun without God. So every once in a while, he acknowledges these divine truths and, and this divine perspective on life. In the book of Proverbs, we get an entirely different perspective of life. The book of Proverbs is clear and concise and straightforward and black and white. The wise man lives this way, and it goes well with him and his years are many on the face of the earth. And the foolish man lives this way, and it does not go well with him, and his days are cut short on the face of the earth. That's Proverbs. Clear, concise, black and white, easy formulas for living. And generally speaking, that is how life goes. But we all know that there are exceptions to that, right? Ecclesiastes is the brutally honest assessment of those exceptions. Sometimes the life of the righteous is cut short. This is vanity. Proverbs say that the righteous will be remembered forever. But we find out that the righteous die and they're quickly forgotten. And the wise man and the fool, they alike die and both of them are quickly forgotten. This is vanity. Sometimes the wicked prosper. This too is vanity and a great evil under the sun. Sometimes our labor is not as productive as we want it to be. Sometimes you work hard and it doesn't pay off for you. This too is vanity and life under the sun. Ecclesiastes is that brutally honest assessment of life under the sun. And so what we are learning is that a life that is lived apart from the wisdom of Proverbs and apart from the praiseworthy God of the Psalms inevitably leads to the discouragement and despair of Ecclesiastes. A life lived apart from the wisdom of the Proverbs and apart from the praiseworthy God of the Psalms brings us inevitably to the despair of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now we're coming into chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes and we're starting into what is really kind of a, a, a different section uh, of Ecclesiastes. And this is part of a section where Solomon is giving to us a list of his observations. And you see he, he started that pattern back in chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, Furthermore, I have seen, chapter 3, verse 22, I have seen, chapter 4, verse 1, then I looked again, chapter 4, verse 1, and behold, I saw, chapter 4, verse 4, I have seen, chapter 4, verse 7, then I looked again. And so it goes all the way through chapter 4 and all the way through Chapter 5, this is a list of Solomon's observations of life under the sun. He is relating to us what he has seen as he looked out, living down here in this sinful, broken, and fallen world. He is giving to us an assessment of what living life here is like. Now, chapter 4 is something of a different style. Sorry, chapter 4 begins a section that is of a different style than what we have encountered so far in Ecclesiastes. Chapters 1 through 3, really, are sort of an introduction, uh, are the introductory material, where Solomon introduces us to his perspective, his mindset, The view is view under the sun, and we are introduced to these themes of under the sun and vanity and emptiness and meaninglessness, and that starts in chapter 1 through 3, and those themes are picked up and continued all the way through the rest of Ecclesiastes. And then at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, we have the concluding material where Solomon brings us face-to-face again with the God who has appointed these seasons for us to live and has done so for his own glory and for our good, and a God who must be trusted and a God under whose authority we live, because He is a sovereign God who will judge all men. That's the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. So talked about the introduction and the conclusion, and then in the middle, from chapter 4, verse 1, we could actually say chapter 3, verse 16, all the way through the middle of chapter 10, about verse 8, you have this collection of material that is very much in style, very much like Proverbs in its style. It is a collection of all of these different subjects that Solomon brings up. One commentator that I read said it's, it's kind of like a manual on living where all of these different topics are, are, are brought up and discussed. And there's a wide variety of different subjects. Solomon talks about oppression and work and labor and the fruit of our labor and rest and entertainment and weariness and sadness and happiness and joy and depression and government and bureaucracy and uh, uh, war and peace And life and encouragement and discouragement and loneliness and companionship and a whole bunch of other stuff. And that's a wide, wide variety of topic matter that Solomon addresses in this middle section. And as he does so, it's almost as if Solomon picks up one subject because some of these topics are, are discussed multiple times throughout the section. So it's as if Solomon picks up a subject and he examines it from a certain perspective and he offers commentary on it and his perspective and maybe a little bit of wisdom. Sometimes it's just his reaction to this observation. Sometimes he provides to us some wisdom about this this topic and then he'll set it down for a little bit go on to some other things and then he'll pick up the same subject again and this time he will examine it from a bit of a different perspective and offer us a little bit of different wisdom and then he'll set that down and go on to something else and then he'll pick up that subject again so there are some subjects where Solomon addresses it three times or more in this middle section each time as if he is giving us something of a different perspective and it presents something of a challenge in preaching through this because as you bring it up you ask okay what Now, what perspective is Solomon giving to us? Is he being sarcastic? Is he being discouraging? Is he giving us the the under-the-sun perspective or the divine wisdom perspective on this? Is this truly wisdom that he is relating to us? Or is this sort of his cynical under-the-sun perspective that he's given to us? So it's a bit of a a challenge as we kind of address some of these themes. Now, in chapter 4, there is one theme that works its way through all of these different topics. And I want you to notice what it is before we begin working our way through it. It is the theme of loneliness and companionship. That kind of works into every subject that is picked up and discussed in all of chapter 4. Loneliness and companionship. So in verses 1 to 3, Solomon describes the oppressive acts that are done under the sun, the oppressed and the oppressors. But then he notes twice in verse 1, they had, that is the oppressed, had no one to comfort them. That's the picture of loneliness. Then in verses 4 through 8, he describes work and labor. And he describes there the lonely man... The man who has isolated himself because everything that he does is done out of jealousy of other people. And then you have another man there who is described who is also lonely because all of his work and energy and effort is expended. And yet he never stops to ask himself, for whom am I depriving myself of joy by working so hard? He has nobody to share the fruits of his labor with and nobody to enjoy his labor with. And then there is a middle section there, verses 9 to 12, which I'll return to here in just a second of some Proverbs and some counsel on companionship and the benefits of friendship. And then beginning in verses 13 through the end of the chapter, Solomon describes a king who has his entire following leave him to go to the side of another man. And so then we see at the end of the chapter that even at the top as a king, it can be very lonely and discouraging. So it is loneliness and companionship that weaves its way through all of these discussions, through oppression and labor and work, and then even being a king and having companionship as a king. And then in verses 9 to 12, read these Proverbs with me. This is where it kind of strikes the style of the book of Proverbs with us. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three stands is not quickly broken. So there's a series of Proverbs that describe the blessings and benefits of friendship and companionship. And that is contrasted with the theme of loneliness that's woven throughout the rest of the chapter. The man who is lonely in his oppression, lonely in his work, lonely in enjoying the fruit of his labor, and lonely at the top as a king. It's all loneliness, but then breaks into this this wisdom on companionship and friendship. Now that's an overview of chapter 4. So now today we're going to look at just one subject, that of oppression, in verses 1 through 3. And I could have really, I thought about dra- grabbing two topics here and doing oppression and then labor and work, but that would have taken us all the way down to the end of verse 8. And that's too big of a chunk of text to try and tackle with two different subjects and to do justice to both of them. So we're just talking about oppression today, verses 1 to 3. And then we'll look at labor and work in verses 4 through 8 next week. So this may end up being something of a shorter message um, in 20 years of, preaching. Nobody has ever complained because one of my messages were short, so consider this my New Year's gift to you right here at the beginning of the year. You are welcome, especially on a championship Sunday when the games are starting earlier than we might want them to start. So this is the evils of oppression, verses 1 to 3. The evils of oppression. Let's read these three verses together. You'll notice that they divide into two sections. Verse 1 is Solomon's, uh, the, the reality of oppression is described, and then verses 2 and 3, Solomon's response to oppression. So verse 1, Then I looked again at the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. That's depressing, isn't it? Matt said to me today before the service, it's going to be another uplifting service when, when the word of the day is oppression. And that's what all the kids are supposed to be listening for is the word oppression. It truly can be a bit of a discouraging, a, a bit of a discouraging passage. But let's look first at the reality of oppression as Solomon describes it in verse one. This was something that he saw. I looked again at the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed. So this is something that Solomon had first-hand knowledge of, first-hand observation of, A group of people who were oppressed by other people. And this vexed him. But notice that Solomon doesn't say anything about correcting this issue or doing anything to alleviate the oppression. Now that observation that I just made in that last sentence, that observation is a reason, is given as a reason why some people do not believe that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes. They say, how do they get there from here? What did Solomon observe? In chapter 3, verse 16, he ad- observed that in the place of justice, there was no justice, but only wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, there was no righteousness, but only wickedness. Solomon doesn't do anything about it. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, I saw the oppressed, and I saw the tears of the oppressed. He makes the observation, but he doesn't do anything to correct the situation. Now why would some people think that that indicates that Solomon was not the author of this book? Because Solomon was a king. He was a sovereign. He was accountable to no one, and everyone was accountable to Solomon. So if the author of this book really is a king who is in a position to correct these issues, why does he just observe these things that were going on and then not do anything to correct them? So some have suggested it wasn't really Solomon he wrote this book, but rather Kohaleth, the preacher that is described in chapter 1, verse 1, He is not Solomon himself, but another individual who is using the life and characteristics of Solomon's life and position kind of as a foil to tell a story. And that somebody, it would be as if I were to tell a first-hand account through the eyes of George Washington and I were to describe a historical situation or communicate the wisdom through the life of George Washington using features of his life and events in his life sort of as a foil for telling that story or that morality tale. That's what some people think is going on here. But denying that Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes actually presents a whole lot more problems than it solves. It presents some problems with some other passages of Scripture. I don't want to get too far off into the weeds. But what are we to do? We affirm that Solomon wrote this book. What are we to do with this observation that he mentions or complains about these situations but doesn't do anything to correct them? Have you ever known of a ruler who complains about an unjust or wicked situation? But then lacks the moral, political, or spiritual courage to do anything to change the situation. Can you imagine such a situation? Can you imagine such an environment? Probably not. But in 1 Kings chapter 11, we find out that Solomon himself was among the oppressor class. Because he taxed the people, and he had all those building programs. And 1 Kings chapter 11 said he had a whole labor force of forced laborers who did his building and did his bidding for him? Solomon was among the oppressor class. And when you keep in mind Solomon's spiritual state at the time that he writes this, he is not a pietistic of a pious man who is walking with God, whose heart is aflame with love and devotion to God, who is dedicated to doing the right thing and the moral and, and true thing. That's not Solomon. At the end of his life, he is a cynic, he is a skeptic, he is discouraged, he is depressed, and his viewpoint is that it is all vanity. So it is not difficult to imagine that Solomon might look out among the oppressed and say, I have seen the oppressed, I have seen the oppressors, and I have seen the tears of the oppressed, and I have witnessed all of this oppression. Well, Solomon, what are you going to do about it? Nothing. I'm one of the oppressors. He had it in his power to do it. I think he lacked the political and moral courage to do anything about it. And so he just observes it, and you'll notice that there is nothing that he says about what he would do or what we should do to alleviate oppression. He just observes the state of the oppressed, and then as if he had nothing to do with contributing anything to the state of the oppressed, he sort of washes his hands from it and just says, this is my guttural reaction to the oppression that I saw. It vexed me. It made me congratulate the dead. It doesn't say anything about changing it. So I think the Solomon... And, and these, these observations, there are a bunch of things that Solomon complains about through the book. This is just the second one that we've noticed. There are a bunch of them that he complains about that he doesn't do anything to correct. And people look at all of those, I think there's about half a dozen of them, and they say, well, if Solomon really wrote this, he would be the author. No, he is the author. But keep in mind his spiritual state, even as he writes this book. Okay, so notice then in verse one that the oppression that Solomon is describing is not specified, there's nothing specific given about the type of oppression the type of oppressors, other than the fact that they had on their side power. Verse 1, Then I looked again at the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. Behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of the oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. There's nothing specific given. It's very general, right? You don't have any idea who who is who are these oppressors. What type of oppression is Solomon describing here? Is he describing oppression by government, oppression by masters, oppression by slave owners, oppression by powerful people, oppression by... Uh, by rich people oppression by poor people there is a, a oppression that is done by poor people the proverbs talk about that so what type of oppression is it Solomon's very vague and very general and i think it is an intentional an intentional vagary vagary is that a word vagady vagad. it's intentionally vague because solomon I, I think solomon wants to leave it in our minds that he is complaining about something like this and then our minds are able to fill in the blanks so as i've been talking about oppression up here for the last 10 minutes In your mind, you have probably already come up with numerous examples of oppression that you're thinking of, different styles of oppression, examples of oppression, historical incidences of oppression. And I think that that is the point. He is lamenting this oppression that takes place under the sun among men, but he's not being specific, lest we think that he only wants to describe or single out one particular type of oppression, whereas Scripture gives us all kinds of examples of the type of oppression that happens under the sun. Let me give you a few examples of of what Scripture enumerates. Scripture describes exorbitantly high interest rates among God's people in the nation of Israel as an example of oppression. Corrupt weights and measures is a way of oppressing somebody in the marketplace when you had weights and measures that were not quite right so that you would uh, you would do sort of a shell game with white, heavy weights and light weights and you didn't measure everything right. You could actually end up exploiting people, taking advantage of their naivete and and uh, and taking things from them and robbing them. That was a form of oppression. Poor treatment of a servant or an employee is a form of oppression. Not paying your employee is a form of oppression. Stealing and retaining lost property. And I can give you scripture references for each one of these, but I'm just giving you the list. Swearing falsely, defrauding or robbing somebody, violence and bloodshed, denial of rights and justice. In fact, the denial of justice that Solomon describes in chapter 3, verse 16 that we looked at last week, that in the place of justice there was wickedness, in the place of righteousness there was wickedness. When the the oppressed are denied justice for their oppression, that is a form of oppression. The denial of justice is a form of oppression. When the when the wealthy or the protected class of the day gets a different kind of justice than the rest of us get, that is a form of oppression. Neglect of widows and orphans and strangers is another form of oppression. So those are all of the things that are mentioned um, in Scripture as forms of oppression. So when Solomon talks about oppression, he's just describing he's just describing this in its most general way, and you and I are to understand that all of these things that Scripture describes that fit that description are the things that Solomon has in mind this is not the first time, or this is not the last time in the book of Ecclesiastes that Solomon will mention this. I want you to turn over to chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, and I want you to see it here. Verse 8 of chapter 5, If you see the, oppressed, the oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight, for one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field... In his advantage to the land. You see what Solomon's saying? You see oppression, the denial of righteousness and justice in the land? Don't be shocked. There are officials who watch over that. And over those officials are other officials. And over those officials are still more officials. What is Solomon describing? The oppression of people by government, bureaucrats, and officials. There's truly nothing new under the sun, is there? You understand that the number one oppressor in the history of humanity, is government. There is no close second. Whether you're talking about the communist revolution in Russia that took the lives of tens of millions of people, or the Khmer Rouge in the killing fields, or Venezuela, or the oppression and genocide that happened in Mexico, or even our own government with Native Americans and, and black people in the early years instigated and encouraged by, by the theory of Darwinian evolution, or whether you're talking about Tojo's Japan or Hitler's Germany or Mussolini's Italy, the list can go on and on, can it? Or King George over us. The list of oppressions done, committed by governments is enormous. And there is no close second. There is a second place. I don't know what it is. Right? Maybe Walmart is second place. But listen, that is, that is, I wouldn't even say that that's second place. It's nothing compared to what human governments have done because you give people power and what do they do with it? Alleviate oppression? Never. You want to increase oppression? Here's what you do. You increase the size and the scope and the reach and the power of government and you will increase oppression every single time without exception. Without exception. It will never be otherwise. It is amazing to me that some people think that the answer to oppressed people and helping the poor and the needy is to increase the size and the scope of government. Hello, McFly. What in the last 6,000 years would give anybody the idea Anybody the idea that the answer to oppression is giving the oppressors more power and influence. That is a recipe for disaster. Because God did not ordain governments, human governments, to alleviate oppression. They are supposed to, they are supposed to defend and reward what is right and punish evildoers. That is their job. To protect their citizens and to punish evildoers. Not to alleviate the poor and not to alleviate the downtrodden. And when we give them that ability, that power, and that direction, expect them to do it, it will always turn out poorly. Always. Because they will use their power for corrupt purposes. And this is, this is the way it is in our own nation. This is the way it is in every single nation on the face of the planet. We are literally surrounded everywhere, in every nation, by forms of oppression whether it is men oppressing women or women oppressing their children or women oppressing men or governments oppressing other people or governments funding oppression or whether it is slavery or the sex trade or whether it is drug abuse and drug use and whether it is in the marketplace through corrupt government officials. whatever We're surrounded by it. It's everywhere. Will it ever change? No. It has never changed for 3,000 years of human history. It was this way in Solomon's day. It is this way in our day. And it will be this way as long as there are people. Because people do the oppression. And because the heart of man does not change, our situation does not change. Our inherent goodness does not change because we are not inherently good. So as long as there are people, there will be these forms of oppression. And oppression will exist. And so then the question is, what do we do with oppression in our own age? How do we respond to that? We'll get to that in just a second. So chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, that was a bit of a rant on 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 bureaucracy. <laughs> but what do you expect when one government official watches over another official and there are more officials over that? Do you expect justice? No. So you'll be denied justice in the place where there should be justice, when that is the situation. And we were warned about that, right, in the book of Deuteronomy? We were warned about that. God said to the children of Israel, you want a king? Here's what it means. They're going to enlist your sons and the daughters. They're going to tax you. They're going to take your land. They're going to take your food. And they're going to do it all for themselves. They will oppress you. They will beat you down. It will be miserable for you. And the people said, well, give us a king. Right? And we do the same thing today. We want everything handed to us and everything good for us, and so give somebody else more power and they will make it happen, and it'll it'll never happen. We've been warned. We've been warned. All right, look at Solomon's reaction to oppression. Oh, no, I was going to give you the other example of oppression that Solomon mentions later in the book, and it's in chapter 8, verse 9. look over there real quick. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that's been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. That's describing oppression. That is what oppression is. It is the use or abuse of... A power or position for your gain or for somebody's gain at another person's expense. Right? When you say I'm going to take money from this person to give it to this person, that is a form of oppression. You say, "Well, I'm helping this person." Yes, you are, but you're oppressing this person. So you can't do one without the other. And you say, "I'm going to take something from this person and I'm going to make life better for this person." You are oppressing one person at the expense of an or oppressing one person at the expense of another person. That's what oppression is. It is the misuse or abuse of power in any form. For the benefit of one person, whether it's yourself or someone that you like or a political constituent at the expense of somebody else. That is, that is oppression at the hand of man and it happens all the time. So this is a good example of how Solomon takes the subject of oppression. He brings it up in chapter four, in chapter five, and in chapter eight, each time kind of giving a bit of a different spin, offering a different observation and wisdom from it. Now back to chapter four. Back to chapter four, verse one. Notice that Solomon twice, three times he uses the form of the word oppress. I have noticed, I've looked upon oppression. I have seen the oppressors and I've seen the tears of the oppressed. And then twice, he says, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of the oppressors was power, but the oppressed had no one to comfort them. And that is what strikes the, the theme of loneliness and isolation. It's bad enough that they are oppressed and beaten down and pushed down and have take things taken from them and that they get the, the, the short stick in life, as it, as it were. It's bad enough that that happens. But when that happens, and they don't even have anybody to comfort them, that's a horrible situation. Uh, Who do you turn to when the government is the oppressor? Who do you appeal to? Who do you turn to when everybody in your life is oppressing you, because all of them have more power than you, and there is nowhere to run, there is no place to turn, there is nobody to go to? This is the condition of these men. You can imagine that Solomon could easily be describing his own forced laborers. To whom do they appeal? To their taskmaster? To Solomon? To Solomon? To one official above them, or the other official above them, or the official above that official who's over the official who's under the other official who's under Solomon, who do you appeal to in a situation like that? They had no one to comfort them, no one to no one to step up and no one to put their arm around them, or to encourage them, or to alleviate the situation. This is truly a sad and depressing and horrible state of affairs that Solomon is describing. But keep in mind, Solomon himself was in some measure responsible for this very thing. Now let's look at the reaction to oppression that he gives in verses two to three. And this is where kind of the depression. I mean, everything I've described so far is encouraging and cheerful and makes you smile and and warms the cackles of your heart. But this is where it really starts to get depressing in verse 2. So I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. But better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I want you to notice how different that reaction. I congratulated the dead more than the living because they're really... They've really got it going on, the dead people. <clears throat> and then even better than them is the one who has never even existed. Notice how different that attitude is from other things that we have seen from Solomon, even in the previous chapter. You can look at chapter 2, verse 24. There's nothing better for man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. Chapter 3, verse 12. I know that there's nothing better for them to rejoice and do good in one's lifetime. Chapter 3, verse 22. I have seen that nothing is better than a man should be happy in his activities, for this is his lot. I mean, that's the, that's the encouraging part of it, right? You eat and drink and enjoy your labor and the fruit of your labor and wife and life with the wife of your youth and enjoy the good gifts that come from God's hand. And then you get into chapter four and immediately he said, better off dead. Some people are just better off dead. I mean, talk about a wild swing, right? A couple weeks ago, Justin mentioned in his message that uh, women's emotions bounce up and down like a kangaroo on a pogo stick. Now, that's not exactly what he said, but it's close and I'm paraphrasing everything. If you think that women's emotions bounce up and down like a kangaroo on a pogo stick, and I'm not saying that I believe that, but that's what Justin said. So if you you have an issue, you can bring it up with Justin. You you shouldn't have any trouble chasing him down after church. You can bring that up with Justin. If you believe that about women's emotions, look at Solomon's emotions, right? Enjoy life and the good activities and be happy. Better off dead. I mean, that seems like a wild swing. What is Solomon doing here? He is giving to us a guttural reaction to what he has seen under the sun. He's not commending something to us, he is giving us a guttural reaction to it. So what do we make of this? Let me give you three observations from this. First, this is, this is a real human response, a real emotional human response to this type of suffering that Solomon witnessed. And it's something that we see other people in scripture in the Old Testament particularly express this. Let me give you a couple of examples. Do you remember Jonah? After the city of Nineveh repented, what did Jonah say? He went out of the city and said, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. Another example is the prophet Elijah after the, the confrontation with the prophets on Mount Carmel. And, and, the, and they killed those prophets and there was that revival that was sparked. And then Jezebel threatened Elijah. You remember what Elijah did? First Kings 19 verse 4 says, He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. And he said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. Now the Lord reproved and rebuked both Jonah and Elijah. Why was that? Because when they requested death, they had absolutely no reason at all to request death or to view death as being more beneficial or or better for them than life. No reason at all. Both of those men had experienced great spiritual victories, had begun and instituted great revivals, and had been used by the Spirit of God and by God to do a great and miraculous and awesome thing. And they were—they should have been on a spiritual mountaintop. And then, in a very selfish way, they go out and they plead for death. And the Lord reproved both of those men. But there is an example of men whom God did not reprove for thinking that sometimes death is better than life. One example of that is uh, the book of Job. And in Job, here's what Job said. Chapter 3, Let the day perish on which I was born and the night which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Let not God above care for it nor light shine on it. Let darkness and black gloom claim it and let the clouds settle on it and let the blackness of the day terrify it. Another example is Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 20, verse 18, Why did I ever come forth from the womb to look on trouble and sorrow so that my days have been spent in shame? And even Jesus said of Judas, In the case of that man, what? It is better for him to have never been born. Because Scripture acknowledges this thing that we all intuitively know, that there are examples and instances of extreme suffering, extreme torment, undue persecution and affliction, where you look at the situation of the individual and the honest assessment is that death for that person is better than life. In the case of Jeremiah, he had been hunted and haunted and hounded by the religious authorities and the leaders of the nation. They wanted him dead and they threw him into a cistern and they burned his scrolls and they took everything from him and persecuted him. In the example of Job, Job was without even comforters in all of his sorrow and affliction. And so these men looked at their situations and said, I would rather be dead and out of this life than to observe that. This is a very real human emotion to suffering, and sometimes it is something that we all acknowledge to be true. Second, there is a sense in which you and I can sympathize with this sentiment. Does there ever come a point when you look around you at the sin and destruction and the horrific situation of a fallen and broken world, And you say to yourself, can we just stop the tape and move to the next track in God's playlist, be done with this and go on to the kingdom? Can we just stop it? Better off is the people who will never yet be born, who have to see and witness all of this destruction, the death and the misery that life in a fallen world brings. There's a sense in which I can sympathize with that. You can sympathize with that. And the third thing to recognize and acknowledge is that Solomon is here he is not prescribing a reaction to this situation. He is describing his reaction. This is descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning that Solomon is simply giving to us how he reacted to it. He is not prescribing, he's not suggesting to us that we respond with depression and discouragement and, and total nihilism. That's not what Solomon is suggesting. He's describing his own guttural reaction to this. In fact, you'll notice that Solomon doesn't prescribe any activity or action for us to take. He doesn't say anything about correcting the situation or even what we should do about it. He just observes it. He says, this is how I felt about it. And then he moves on. Doesn't do anything to change it. Doesn't even suggest that we do anything to change it. So if we want to know what do we do about oppression, how do we respond to oppression, we have to look outside of Scripture to get the answer to that. And the answer for us as Christians is that first we recognize that we live in a fallen and broken world, and so oppression is the order of the day. It has been this way. It will always be this way. We ought to expect it. We don't want to encourage it, but we ought to expect it and know that this is the nature of the world in which we live. And so it is the church who has the responsibility to care for the poor, to care for the needy, to bear one another's burdens, to lift up one another, to pray for one another, to give to one another, to encourage one another, to do what we can to to share those burdens and bear those burdens and walk with one another in prayer and in holiness and seeking to alleviate the suffering of other people. That is the church's responsibility. And once again, it is not the government's responsibility. This is a worldview issue. It is the church's responsibility to do that. And when the government rushes in to do it, guess who steps out of that role? The church steps out of that role. But historically, that has always been the work of the church. And when you ask the government to do it, they will fail because that is not what God has ordained the government to do. We expect the church to do that because that is the role that the church has been given. And we've been given leadership and and instruction and accountability for that very reason. And so that is our role, to do what we can, to seek in every way to alleviate that suffering as best we can for the glory of God, as we live with one another and love one another and serve one another. And as we do that, as we do that, we demonstrate the heart of God toward the oppressed, whether it is the child or the widow or the orphan or the lonely person who needs compassion and encouragement. We demonstrate the heart of God towards toward the oppressed. And we have to be aware of that. And understand that that is our responsibility. Before we leave this subject, one last observation. And this has to go back to chapter 3, verse 17. We recognize that God is the one who will judge the oppressor. Chapter 3, verse 17. We know that God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked. No oppression will go unanswered. Not one. Now that says something when you realize we live in a world filled with oppression. Where everybody is trying to oppress somebody else in some way, with rare exception. We live in a world that is filled with that. Every act of oppression will be judged and will be recompensed by a God who is sovereign and who calls everything to account. This is what Solomon comes back to at the end of Ecclesiastes. We know that God will bring every last deed and every last act to judgment and to accountability. And so we live under that purview, understanding we are here to help the oppressed and we recognize and warn that God himself will judge the oppressors for their acts of wickedness. Next week, Lord willing, we will go on and talk about labor and the loneliness of labor. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we thank you for the encouragement from your word and that you have done this work in our hearts and in our lives to give us an insight into, into the truth of the oppressed around us. We pray that you would continue to make us aware of the needs of others, to reach out to them, to love one another. We pray that you would make us men and women who would do good to all men, but especially to those who are of a household of faith. May you be glorified in and through the work that you do in your church. Thank you for your encouragement and for your word, which is so clear on our role and our responsibility in all things pertaining to life and godliness. We ask you to bless our time and our thoughts and our meditations upon your word and your truth. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.